Hey everybody, this is Wyatt. Welcome back to Breadcrumbs, a podcast tracing the trail of breadcrumbs from the Garden of Eden to the Empty Tomb. Have you ever noticed the irony of the Noah's Ark story in modern Christian culture? Weird question to start off with, but think about it with me though. Try to remember, if you can, different ways that you have seen the Ark narrative as depicted in mainstream circles. Take, for example, the popular description of Noah's Ark in children's Bibles that we see. I'm not sure that all are like this, but I remember some that I grew up with that depicted Noah and the Ark as a really quaint, somewhat jovial scene. I distinctly remember one children's Bible in particular that had a picture of Noah where he was painted like this ancient Santa Claus in a way, with a big white beard, rosy cheeks, and a big toothy grin. And on either side of him were a couple different animals, I think a giraffe and a lion, just smiling. But what is this story really about, though? The world got so incredibly bad so quickly after the fall, and the evil was so intolerable to God that he sent a flood on the earth to drown every single human being on the surface of a planet, except for one man and his family. That's not a very jovial, happy-go-lucky scene, is it? It's kind of harsh, and in a way, it's a bit horrifying. But then here is where some other people jump off and they highlight the death and destruction and instead say that this is evidence that God is a cruel egomaniac. Some others, if they don't dismiss the Ark narrative entirely, say that this is proof that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods, or that the God of the Old Testament is not merciful but wrathful and destructive, and that Jesus is somehow the one that saves us from him. The reality is the story of Noah is somewhere in between, and it's just as an important part of the scarlet thread of redemption that stitches all the stories of the Bible together. It not only demonstrates accurately the human condition absent with God, but it also portrays God's character accurately, as does the rest of the Bible. The story itself does the job of pointing to another who would do what the Ark and Noah couldn't do. And that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode of Breadcrumbs, as well as in the next one that we'll be releasing on Sunday. For the sake of time, I've decided to split this up into two different episodes to tackle this so that we don't go on for a half an hour. In this episode, we'll spend the bulk of our time setting the stage and laying out the context of the story. In the episode coming out on Sunday, we'll focus on the connections that the story of Noah has to Christ and where we find more breadcrumbs on this long trail from the garden to the tomb. Let's get to it. So to set the stage for our more in-depth discussion of how Noah points to Christ, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three questions, the why of why God decided to send the flood, the how of the flood or what it was to accomplish, and lastly, the who, who Noah was and how he filled the role of second Adam in a way. We aren't going to spend a great deal of time discussing the details of the ark's construction, how the animals got there, or how they all fit. We could go off into the weeds on that if we wanted to, and as well if we wanted to kind of build up a lengthy apologetic to prove that this all happened. But we're not going to for two reasons. Little to say anything about our own time constraints. We're not going to be delving into that because there's plenty of other wonderful resources out there on the subject. But also because the rest of scripture treats this as fact. I believe that all of scripture is true, not just parts. So my view of what the text says is that it's true and it's accurate and it's historical. 
And that's going to inform my entire take on this episode. So because scripture takes it as fact, we're going to take it as fact as well. So to get us started off, let's answer the question of why. Why did God decide to wipe out the entirety of mankind, save one family? And why was he just in doing so? From the end of Genesis 2 on, each chapter of the book seems to have a theme. And out of all those leading up to the flood, only one of those themes is even somewhat positive in any way. Genesis 3, of course, is the fall of man through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Genesis 4 depicts the murder of Abel at the hand of his brother Cain. And then it tells a story about a harsh man named Lamech who pridefully declares that he's 11 times more vengeful than Cain was. I suppose you could even make a case that Genesis 5 is negative because the chorus of the whole chapter is the death of one generation after another. And the death, as we know, is a result of the fall. And then finally, we end up at chapter 6, and it clearly paints a pretty dark picture of a world that does not look at all like what God laid out in the Garden of Eden at creation. So let's read part of chapter 6, and let's look at the depiction of this cruelty that we see in verses 1 through 13. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So, the picture that we get is that from the moment that God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, things have steadily deteriorated bit by bit, generation after generation, to a point where it was out of control. As you read this, you might have been a little confused about the first couple verses that mentioned the quote-unquote sons of God and the, the Nephilim. This is a weird passage, but... And commentators kind of differ on who these people are and what is meant by this in verses 1 through 4. A popular theory that has some grounds is that these quote-unquote sons of God were fallen angels that had intermarried with human women, creating a generation of giant, super, sort of superhuman kings that were given the name of Nephilim that founded these tyrannical warring kingdoms in the region. 
So giant supernatural kings, death and murder, the earth filled with violence. It's not a happy picture. And to ask why God decided to flood the earth and start over, it's kind of pretty easy to see his reasoning at this point. Everything had spiraled out of control. It was seemingly worse than what the world looks like now or ever. The thing is, if we just simply look at the text here and what's happened so far, it's honestly harder to see from this description why God didn't start entirely over from scratch by flooding the whole earth and killing everybody in it, including Noah. But we'll see why he decided on his original plan that included Noah once we unpack what is really going on here. But then our second question is, why, why was he justified in doing so? Essentially, why was God right to do this? A lot of people today are going to recoil at the severity of God's wrath that gets poured out here. Was it really this bad? Was this just not an overreaction? But those questions all come out of a human-centered focus. Out of our pride, Christians and non-Christians alike tend to sway their focus towards humans in some way, thinking that we're kind of on equal grounds with God, or that we somehow have a place to hold sway over his decisions, like we're on a level that we can bargain with him. But we don't stand toe-to-toe with him. We are in the place of creation, not creator. We remain in existence because he allows it. We draw breath because he allows it. We all woke up this morning because he allowed us to, not because of anything that we did. The question in this passage shouldn't be, why was he justified? The picture we get is that the overwhelming majority of the human population had grievously sinned against God, turned their backs on him, and spent their time building up their pride, their power, their kingdom, and causing misery on others for their pleasure and their gain. So really, our question should be not, why was it so severe? We, again, should be asking the question, why on earth did God decide to spare us through our ancestor Noah and allow mankind to continue on living? Even Noah, in his righteousness and in his belief, was a human being and a sinful one at that, as we'll see later on after the flood. He didn't deserve to live either. But God was gracious and kind, and he had another bigger and much more glorious plan in mind. And we're going to see how that plays out when we unpack this whole whole passage and see where it points to Christ in the next episode. The other two things that I told you we needed to look at was the who and the how of the flood. And they're actually really connected to one another. God is so grieved here, as we see, by the wickedness of what he has created that he has decided to totally wipe away its wickedness, symbolically washing it clean through the flood. But Noah, this guy who seems like the only righteous man left on earth, finds favor in God's eyes. We read in verse 9 where it says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. 
So God specifically calls Noah to a mission. He and his family get to essentially be the reset, the not-so-soft reboot of the whole human race. Theologians, when referring to this position that Noah takes, refer to him as a type of Adam or a second Adam. See, through Adam, the first Adam, the whole world had been populated, and through his sin and disobedience, the whole world had descended into absolute wickedness and depravity. So now, Noah gets to fill that same role and act as the head of the human family again. He's the one through whom every generation afterward will be a descendant. And to add to that, he's a righteous man. He's blameless and he walks with God. So maybe, just maybe, in wiping out all the evil, washing the surface of the earth clean, maybe the generations that come after Noah will carry his righteousness and he'll be blameless in God's sight, right? Well, if only it were that easy. See, we all know the story of what happens. God commands Noah to build an ark, and he does. The Lord sends all the animals required to it. He shuts the door, and he sends the floods to the earth. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and then nearly a year after it began to rain, finally, Noah and his family get to leave the ark. The picture is green and verdant and hopeful. Noah builds an altar and makes a sacrifice to the Lord who restores his covenant with mankind. He sets his rainbow in the sky as a sign and a seal of his word. And that's where the story ends, right? Sadly, no, because righteousness isn't genetic. It doesn't get passed down from one generation to the next. Not to mention the fact that even Noah's righteousness wasn't all-encompassing and complete. He wasn't perfect and blameless entirely. We all know the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, but it's easy to overlook the story that comes after, which gives us a clue and, and helps us to understand what's really going on here. As the story of the flood is over, we see a return to sin. In chapter 9 of Genesis, we read this weird story of when Noah becomes drunk and falls asleep in his tent, and his son Ham finds him there naked. Ham goes out to his brothers, and it seems like from the text that he makes jokes about what he saw, shaming his father and dishonoring him. After this all goes down, we see yet another curse pronounced, this time from Noah on his own son, and yet again, we see the world spiral out of control, not just from the descendants of Ham, but from all of mankind. Simply starting over from one family, from one righteous man, wasn't enough. It, it didn't work. He may have walked with God, listened to God, and had faith in God, but that wasn't passed down genetically to his descendants. Certainly, Noah's righteousness wasn't genetic, but unrighteousness and sin might as well have been. There's a lot going on here in this passage, and it could be easy at first glance to make it seem like God may have messed up in a way, or that his plan to reboot humanity from a righteous root was a flop. As we'll discuss in the next episode at greater length, it wasn't a flop. It accomplished everything that it intended to. 
Now, I don't want to ruin the next episode, but I also don't want to leave you with nothing. It's clear that the flood didn't solve humanity's problem, and it, it didn't clean all the world's unrighteousness away. So how then was it not a failure, though? In a way, the flood is part of God demonstrating that there is no other way for mankind to be reconciled to God than for Christ to go to the cross, that there is no other means sufficient and effective to restore humanity. It's not as if he's testing out and trying every possible idea that he can to fix the problem so that Christ can be the last resort. The insufficiency of Noah and the flood, and as we'll see in so many other characters in the Bible, their insufficiency points to the sufficiency of another and to the fact that there is only one way for man to be reconciled to God. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Breadcrumbs. I really appreciate you listening. I know we touched on a couple of really weird and kind of deep topics, but hopefully the next podcast will bring some of this into a much clearer picture and help you understand what's really going on in this passage. Now, I've included links to two more videos in the show notes, like the video that I mentioned in our last episode. They're from an organization called The Bible Project that does a wonderful job showing the biblical text and, and helping you to understand it through visual means. The videos are both about spiritual beings within scripture, the first being more of an introduction to the topic, and the second being an explanation of the darker beings in scripture, like the sons of God and the Nephilim that we mentioned today. Now, I hope that they may give you some more clarity and help you to understand what's going on here, and also that they might be a jumping off point for your own study. Thank you again for taking the time to listen, and I really hope that you'll join us for the second part of our discussion of the flood narrative. Let's do this again soon.